Welcome back to the Ventilator Podcast by the Critical Care Triad. I'm one of your hosts, Jerome Lovelady. Later in this podcast, we will be joined by my esteemed and highly knowledgeable co-host, Michael Schaff and Caleb Curtis. If you've just joined us, you've arrived at part two of the ASV discussion with Mr. Jesse Carroll from Hamilton Medical. In part one, we set the stage with Adaptive Support Ventilation, or ASV. Today, we're starting our part two of that same discussion with him. So stay tuned as we navigate through the complexities, unravel the layers, and emerge with a deeper understanding of adaptive support ventilation. This is the Ventilator Podcast by Critical Care Triad, where every breath counts. So welcome again, and let's dive into part two. So the next question that we have here Jesse, is there any limitations that our listeners should be aware of that uh, we can talk about for ASV mode? Sure. Yeah. So I think, and I think it's a great question. Um, so there's only, so we, we've got to understand absolute and relative contraindications. There's only one absolute contraindication for ASV and that are going to, those are going to be your massive air leaks, which is why if you're using the T1, You'll, and you have the neonatal tab on your T1, you'll notice that ASV is not available to you. And that's because traditionally neonates have a pretty significant air leak that we have to work around. Secondarily to that, uh, one of the things we didn't grab out when we first started talking about ASV today was ASV is closed loop ventilation. So if I can't close the loop, i.e. I have an air leak, um, not a, a minimal air leak, I'm talking a significant air leak, um, then I'm not going to be able to use ASV. Um, so that's your absolute. Now, on the relative contraindication side, we're talking about uh, patients that have some augmented breathing patterns like the Biots or the Chain Stokes or the Kusmals. But more importantly, ASV will have challenges um, more so when that patient isn't just having that style of breathing, but they're also neurostorm breathing as well. So it's kind of a combined thing where you would want to move them over into conventional ventilation. And, and usually what I ask clinicians is, 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 well, what would you do with that patient in the first place? If they're breathing erratically like that, tell me what you would do with that. Now, um, the, most of my you know, teams that I work with are ground teams. Um, I do have some air teams that I'm working with as well, but most of them, you know, they are sedating and paralyzing this patient. And if they're sedating and paralyzing this patient, then ASV is, is, a, is a godsend, right? They could just go into using that. Now, why I say that with the erratic breathing is, remember, ASV is, is identifying that this patient is breathing spontaneously. And so it begins to back off on some of the support that it was providing. And, and we still have a tube in this patient's airway. So we have airway resistance, whether we like it or not. Um, and, and that being said, that can lead to work of breathing increases that lead the patient to fatigue, that lead the patient into this conundrum of issues. And therefore, you may move them into conventional ventilation. I still think it's few and far between. I think actually one of the episodes I listened to, um, you talked about um, in your practice, you've used ASV about 85% of the time, Michael. And uh, I really, I took 
that. And I, I really appreciate that because most of these clinicians, what I see when I'm working with them in pre-hospital space, there's, there's a gap in that um, connection of respiratory and uh, paramedic. And so if it's, if it's not only adequate, but optimal for a respiratory therapist in four walls, 85% of the time, I think we can argue that it's optimal for 90 plus to 95% of the time, especially on shorter transports, like four minute transports, because why are we spending time trying to pick conventional ventilator settings for a four minute transport and a 20 minute scene time, right? We're not going to check blood gases. We're not going to do. We're not going to do all of these complex things that you or I would be doing in the hospital with mechanical ventilation. And again, it doesn't. It's not about set it and forget it. It's about optimizing the patient before they get to the facility, and there's going to be a transfer of care. Yeah, good. One of the challenges I have is when I choose to use ASV on a IFT. And, and, and I'll do that because I, I think it's best for the patient. What we tend to forget when the patient's in the hospital, we're going to change their environment drastically. So I'll put them on what the most comfortable mode is in my experience and opinion and what comfort level. So I go ahead and I put them in ASV mode and everything's beautiful. And, uh, you know, the, the, the way the software sets it up is a little, uh, Let's just say it's a soft lung or emphysema patient. And, you know, my tidal volumes are 700. When I go to set it back up on the, the receiving facility and I'm telling the RT, you know, this guy really likes, you know, he likes a tidal volume of 700. And they just look at me like I'm crazy. So they fall back into that six to eight mils per kilogram, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I find that as a challenge. So so what do you say to the to the practitioner who's actually doing that? Like, I know what I do, but what would you say to that? Yeah. So um, a lot of times what I will do, especially in that receiving standpoint, especially when they don't have a Hamilton ventilator, I mean, they're going to go back to conventional ventilation, right? To your point. So what I'll do is I'll ask them two questions. I'll say, what type of breath do you want the patient to get? And do you want the patient to breathe spontaneously? Those two questions, right? Um, Because then it's taking me into modes while I'm with them. Let's say they they say, I want a volume breath. And they say, I want that patient to breathe spontaneously. Then we go into modes. We select um, APV, SIMV. Um, and for, for those um, that are listening in, APV would be adaptive pressure ventilation, which would be akin to pressure-regulated volume control. Okay, And the SIMV is just a signifying that we're going to allow for pressure-supported spontaneous breaths um, in that Uh, uh, mode. Okay. So when you select on that, what's really great about what the T1 is doing is it's going to show you, let's say your transport was 40 minutes, Michael, right? It's going to show you based off of what the patient's been doing on ASV for the last 40 minutes, what the most optimal settings are. And, And even if they're not going to accept those settings, the clinician from your ventilator can then begin to augment those settings to match what they're going to want before you do a transition to the hospital ventilator. So what I would have them do is let's say they go, no, I want a title. I don't want a title volume of 700. Then we look at the minute volume 
we bring the tidal volumes down, we change the respiratory rate to get that the minute volume that would be matching the patient, right? Um, and we get an appropriate eye time because usually the eye time is the one that I find is the biggest change yes, for that patient, you. right? Like that's the big one. And, and so what I do is I say, okay, well, what do you feel comfortable with as far as um, your, your standard uh, I to E ratio? That's what I talk to them about, right? And what I want to hear them say is a one to three or a one to four, right? Is usually what I want to hear them say. Um, but in this case, they may adjust that, right? And so we'll do those settings and we'll accept them on the T1 and then we'll monitor the patient there because they were already doing well in your in your explanation on ASV. We'll monitor them there on the T1 because that's the vent that they've been breathing on. And if they tolerate that for a few minutes, we'll set their receiving vent up on those settings and then we will do the transfer that way. Um, that's worked really, really well, especially for my rotor wings that have been evaluating and implementing the T1 and using, they use ASV as their primary mode of ventilation. And so they go to hospitals often that don't have Hamilton, and this has worked really well for them in transition. That's great. First of all, I want to say I've never done a fixed wing transport for 40 minutes to usually four hours or more. <laughs> No, okay, okay, okay. You're a rotor guy. I guess. <laughs> but no, I, I appreciate that, that you would leave them on the Hamilton and then switch them back over. That's that's brilliant because it gives them the, the opportunity to make adjustments on the fly. I just run into so many people like, I'm not giving them a title. I'm a 750. You know, this isn't back in the 90s, man. We're going less, 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 you know. But, you know, I, I have learned to trust the software and and the the delivery the breath delivery from the ASV so well I I know it knows way more than I know I do, I loved how you say mm -hmm. you're just getting a snippet of what that patient's lung is like you know I'm so so I really trust the ASV I think the key and I'm really glad we're doing this podcast because I think it's going to open up some ears and and some thought process as to hey maybe I should be doing ASV, you know, maybe we're learning more about it and you're putting it into such articulate terms that even I understand. I mean, it, it's, it's going to be helpful down the road for people to really say, Hey, maybe that is the way to go, whether it be a scene call or in a facility or anything, but it does get down to the comfort level and the trust. And I think that starts with education. From yeah, it the does. Top, the top it, it, up. It does. And speaking towards the education, uh, and I'm interested in getting Jesse's point on this one, too, because, you know, I get a lot of questions with the ASV, especially when we come into it and either they're excited about it, but they're 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 not really trustworthy of the mode. And the first thing that I think I do is pull up the dynamic lung and I do show the picture of the dynamic lung as I'm as I'm going through it. And I, first of all, I show them, I take the, I take the test lung and I'm able to drop the compliance or increase the resistance and then show them the differences of that dynamic lung in the pictures and how the square lung is over here for the compliance and in the bronchial tree with the red and how it actually goes to show for the, or the resistance that's actually increasing for the patient. So that's one way of actually typical doing it. And then I swap over to uh, the the I time and the E time. And I show them as like, you know, this is what this is actually doing. And this uses in conjunction with the Otis formula and the Meads formula. And I know I'm seeing people, 
their their faces and stuff right now because they're whoa this is going off into way into left field but this is where my brain you know i have to know the why behind it and kind of want to get your your just a snapshot of this one i think it is going to be another podcast where we describe all that because i know it works in conjunction with it but Jesse, we've gotten I've gotten a couple of questions and we've gotten a couple of questions from some of the viewers about how is what is this? Can you explain it just in a nutshell with the Otis formula and the Meads formula and how this all kind of incorporates it? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome to Fuller Butts, a behind the scenes plastic surgery podcast. Yes, you heard that right. Join your co-hosts, Dr. Sam Fuller and Dr. Dan Butts, board-certified plastic and reconstructive surgeons on an exclusive full-access pass into the world of plastic surgery. Combining their expertise and training, Drs. Fuller and Butts will share medical insights, detailed explanations, and lighthearted humor to keep you entertained and informed. We're certain you'll become passionate about the plastic surgery specialty and between debunking myths, uncovering truths, or just making you laugh out loud at their perspective on this creative and artistic field. We've got something for everyone. Uh, so, well, I'll go, what I'll go to and discuss on for today is, is the way that you go about doing the training right? And when you bring up this dynamic lung, my first question to the teams that I work with or anybody, even when I'm just introducing the vent is how do you, are you comfortable with waveform management, right? Like that's the the question. And 99% of them, it's like, yes, on a cardiac monitor, but not really on a ventilator, right? Because they've largely not had a ventilator that shows them a waveform in the first place. Um, And if they do have a vent that shows them a waveform, it's not a waveform with a user interface that's like from a microprocessor ventilator, right? It's like a very limited view and you realistically can't do much with that waveform. You don't even know if that waveform is measuring anything. It's pressure sensitive, Uh, pressure red. And it's a pressure, tra- exactly. So uh, that being said, most of them, they feel comfortable with understanding pressure waveform, but not so much flow or volume, right? 100%. Like identify, right? And so, so me overlaying the dynamic lung the way you do, uh, overlaying the net, that, but they can understand a picture. And when I can show you, hey, your compliance draws the picture of those blue lungs you see there and your resistance draws the picture of that bronchial tree that you see there, then I can begin to help them streamline identifying disease processes that are going to present in a certain way. So I would say it's not that I um, won't go down or, you know, don't get into the training of, you know, talking about Otis in the needs equation. It's just, again, I try and teach to the vast majority of the folks that are going to interact with the device. And so that's one person every few right. classes <laughs> that I have to interact with. And, um, and realistically, more of what I lean on is, is a twofold is what Michael mentioned is the ventilator is significantly more intelligent than me. And number two, it's because it's leveraging the power of a proximal flow sensor, again, measuring 200 data points per second. And even if I could do five 
you know, data points per second, which I can't, but let's just say I could. What about the other 195 other data points per second that I'm missing (laughs) out on, right? right? Um, And so I don't want to poo-poo the significance of how we leverage Otis and Meads. It's just for this population and for what we're going to use the ventilator for, if we're going to if we're going to be worried about Otis and Meads equation, then I want to make sure that that team has also implemented the volumetric capnography. I want them to also educate me on how they set optimal peeps by looking at you know expired volume of CO two, and and I want them to know versus just throwing something out there because they don't um, they hear a term that they may or may not be familiar with, and it's scary. Right. And and the thing is, is like, I don't want to use this because I hear these two terms that I'm not really familiar or comfortable with. Whereas like, Hey, pull it back. Are you comfortable with static lung compliance and airway resistance? Just pull it back for me. And are you comfortable with when compliance is below this threshold, you're going to see a rigid lung. If it is above this threshold, you're going to see a soft lung or a ballooning lung. If airway resistance is above this threshold, it's going to be a darkened black or become red as it goes higher. This helps them identify disease processes better. And then what happens is, is they get 20 reps running ASV, looking at that dynamic lung of restrictive lung. And now let me be very clear because I definitely support this. You're not diagnosing these patients with these disease processes. I want to like, this is so huge because I think this was mentioned on an episode and I couldn't agree with this more, but here's the caveat to that is most of our clinicians, especially if you're picking up on a scene call, we don't know what this patient's true history is. And the vent is giving us a snapshot and an image into what could be going on, which is a thousand times more than historically what our clinicians have on the ground, right? And now I also want to add, the dynamic lung can be seen in a conventional mode of ventilation, y'all. So it's not just ASV only. So there's, there's value outside of ASV in mechanical ventilation that the T1 provides in conventional ventilation as well for clinicians. So we can still teach to this. It's just, there's a lot, you know, I actually use that for training. I'll put the patient in conventional mode and put, make them a mixed lung condition where they have high airway resistance and poor lung compliance in conventional ventilation. And then I ask the clinician, to man, and I tell them, you know, the patient's CO2 is, let's just call it 70. Now I want you to make a change on the ventilator that you're not only protecting the patient's lung, but you're also starting to improve their ventilation status. And I show them in 99% of them, you know, they, they make a decision because it's safe and it's not wrong. They want to change the respiratory rate. Okay. Change the respiratory rate. Now the CO2 goes from 70 to 68. Now you've taken time and you had to wait five minutes for that change to happen. And now you've got to take another five minutes to make another change. What change are you going to make? Are you going to change the rate again? 
Are you going to change the volume? Are you going to change the inspiratory time? Which one are you going to change? And this is where that, that can, you know, that dreaded phrase we can get is I want control where it can get us in trouble. When we want our control, that is going to impact our time on target. And the longer time I have to mess around with the patient's ventilatory status, the chances that I end up chasing my tail are a lot higher than that of being on a mode of ventilation where I can use one equation to manipulate the patient's ventilation status. I just want to go on record as saying, if we have to implement the Otis equation (laughs) and the Mead equation, I'm going to retire five uh, five years earlier. I'm sorry. I just can't do it. I also want to put a plug in for you guys are talking about the the, uh, dynamic lung. In ASV mode, I am an ASV graph guy. I, I get so much information from that graph, the size of the box, the direction of the box, everything, what the patient's doing spontaneously. That's the graph I want. Now, you guys have opened up my eyes for a learning tool to start using that uh, dynamic lung a little bit more so the learner can get the picture of resistance and compliance. But when I'm in ASV mode, that that graph is mandatory. It tells me everything. So. You know, one thing that I really just like what you said a while ago, too, is that, you know, I've I've been sitting here really quiet and been really listening and and taking notes like I always do. But um, the one thing that I, I thought it was really good is that even though that you're bringing up the Otis and the, the Meads formula and you're talking about these things is that when you start to break it down and Someone who is, I will say, not as well-versed as the rest of the guys on this call uh, or this podcast is that when you start talking about numbers and you start talking about formulas and you're with providers that typically aren't going to be looking at that, what you find is, is that they become very disinterested in what you're teaching. And once you apply it to something where they can use something where they can chew on it for lack of better words right. and they can use this and they can run with that. I feel like that that gives them more to go on and gives them something that they can use on their next call versus now I have to remember the formula. Now I have to write it down. Now where's my calculator? Because I know I'm not going to be able to figure it out right now and reducing that cognitive load like we've talked about earlier as well. So yeah, that's yeah. really, I, I like that you brought that out. Yeah, the, and it goes back to the cognitive load because I was curious how you answered that too because the complexities of those formulas are mind blowing, just like Shaw said. Because I'll I'll actually I actually have it on my phone. Jerome knows this because I've done this, but I have it on my phone, and I'll actually show people. Was like it would take up two whiteboards to actually write all of those formulas down. Just know that the complexity of that formula is is basically showing you how your brain is actually trying to function using pulmonary dynamics and a lot of other complex formulas. What you need to understand by this is looking at the picture and then trying to decipher the the compliance and the resistance. Once we get the basics out of the way, then we can go into the advanced with the waveforms. Because like you said, for the longest time, we didn't have waveforms. And that's always a challenge. Like they can usually pick up the pressure uh, waveforms pretty quickly. Uh, but once you start getting into flow, even explaining sometimes flow inside the classroom, because that is not something that we've ever used before really in the, in the transport world. 
and if you haven't had those advantages before from a different ventilator that actually you you had a chance to talk about flow, you first have to get past that step first. So I agree. I like the way that you were actually talking Absolutely, about that. Man. And that's all we have today for today's discussion. We really want to thank Jesse Carroll with Hamilton Medical for his contribution and coming on here and talking to us. As always, guys, if you have any questions or topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, don't hesitate to reach out. Remember, criticalcaretriad at outlook.com and follow, subscribe, and continue listening. Thank you again. We look forward to talking to you guys again. Stay tuned and keep breathing easy for the next episode of the Ventilator Podcast by Critical Gear Tribe. See you guys later. The information provided in this podcast is intended for educational and informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for medical direction or training. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the organization or institution that they may represent. The listeners are advised that the information contained in this podcast should be used in conjunction with professional medical training and best practice guidelines. The hosting guests of this podcast take no responsibility for the actions or decisions of the listeners.